Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How are you, my friend? Oh, I am in probably one of the best places uh, for you to ask that question. I am in uh, just outside Palermo, in Trabia, this beautiful hotel right on the seaside. And we were here last year actually for the Giro, for the Giro d'Italia, and uh, just sitting outside. And it was pretty funny today because I was trying to explain. Uh, to our Russian mechanic what lives in Spain, how beautiful Sicily is. And he was like looking around and there's all like trash here and there and, and like dead and dogs and whatever. <laughs> but, uh, it was just pretty funny. And I was like, hey, this Sicily, the smell, the colors, you know, the grazie, grazie mille. And uh, all of that. And he was kind of looking at me like, well, the fuck is this guy talking about? And uh, no, it's beautiful. And it's funny because after Tour of the Giro and then Tour of Swiss, I, I came here with Valet to, to Sicily. We came here with the kids for like uh, nine, eight, nine days. So yeah, it's one of the most beautiful places in the world, I think. It's, you know, I love it. Fortunately, you know, they don't take good care of it, but it's a beautiful place. And how are you, by the way? Miss you, man. I'd love to have a nice... You remember how we keep saying, fuck, we have to have barbecues together. I really miss one of them. A real good night out. Ah. Ciao. So Max got, yeah, Max got back to you, David. Yeah, he did. Um, I called him first thing this morning. He didn't answer. Um, I looked at the time and thought, well, it's 10.15. He might be doing director sportive business. So I let yep. it be. Yeah. Um, then I sent him a WhatsApp yep. voice note. Didn't read it. Yeah. Um, then I called back again. Gra- Actually, well, no. gra- did Grey Tick, was that one Grey Tick or... So on WhatsApp uh, originally? It might just so be a Grey Tick. He might, just just uh, might not have turned on the old blue ticks. Yeah, it yeah. might be one of it might be one of void. Let me just check right now just to see, just confirm yeah. that. Well, it's um, but I sent him WhatsApp just to say it was me because he uh, no, it's a blue ticker. That's good. Um, but yeah, then I WhatsApped him afterwards to explain. So I realised, oh, he didn't answer maybe because he doesn't recognise my English number, my oh, British number. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. I haven't. It's been so long since we spoke, and I've had that for a year and a half. Mm-hmm. So then I sent him a voice note. I basically just didn't. I was relentless all day, Ned. And um, tenacious, and eventually he sent tenacious, and then he uh, sent that voice note, and it was lovely, and it was so good to hear his voice. I haven't heard his voice in ages, yeah. and I think it captured his love for Sicily, did it not? No, he really does love it, doesn't he? And the fact that he's gone gone back there on holiday, and then you know, I think he's he's pretty senior at Movistar, isn't he? So he can probably, to some yeah. extent, dictate his race program a little bit, I would imagine. But clearly. 
you know, at their AGM or whatever they have in Pamplona in February he, uh, or November or whenever it is, he put his hand in the air and went, I'll do Sicily. Yep. Put me down that for one. that one. Yeah. That's mine. And I don't blame him, <laughs> it just, David. It's just such a, yeah. it is a beautiful race. I mean, it really is. And is it? Yeah. And I think what's, I, what's today been like? Beautiful, chilled, really? amazing. Um, uh, it's. Uh, you I can, feel like I feel like you're slipping into a Siciliano kind of yeah, state of bit, mind. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. To some extent, you're even more laid. But you even look more laid back than you normally are. Oh, David, I've just discovered the air conditioning doesn't work in this room. You know, like <laughs> you know these feeble, these kind of remote controls that you pick. Oh yeah. Like yeah. And there's always an on-off button, and you hit it 17 mm. times, and you get ever closer to the little wall-mounted unit, and it's a 50-50 chance, isn't it? whether or not yeah. anything springs into life if it's even been plugged in the main unit yeah well i stepped outside i've got this little balcony here you can probably can't hear but there's there's there are literally waves crashing we're on the northern shore oh, of, wow. of sicily here um just kind of a hundred or so kilometers east now of uh, palermo where the race finished today so i've moved on to uh quite close to tomorrow's finish or today's or whenever you're listening to this stage three let's call it um but yeah, I've got a tiny little balcony and I did step outside when I realised just how hot it was in the room because I opened the door and I, I've i kind of looked outside and there's a rusting, um, very rusting sort of air conditioning unit. And it mm. and I had already started to have my doubts um, about whether or not it was going to fire into life. And um, as things stand, it uh, doesn't look too, doesn't look too uh, promising, to be honest. Um, I also like the the crucifix that is perfectly framed just behind your head. God, I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, yeah, the Zamaria. Yeah, it's quite a chunky wooden carved crucifix there, isn't it? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, one thing I was going to mention, I don't think I got around to mentioning it in yesterday's pod because it was so action-packed with um, stuff. Really. Action-packed, it was action-packed. Well, it wasn't filled. so much action-packed as I felt as if... It was a smorgasbord of straying... Yeah, it was almost a kind of highway code of straying, wasn't it? It was it was how to mm. stray in one podcast because no sooner had we struck off in one direction than we took a 90 degree left turn. And 50, 50 minute, minute, meters later, we were turning off again mm. at 90 degrees in another direction. It, uh, it felt segway free. But yet felt segway free um, to a large extent. Mm. No, actually... To a reasonable extent, yeah. But one of the things that fell by the wayside as we went through our kind of various twists and turns was I wanted to talk to you about a subject I know very little about, <laughs> just, just to make a change. Um, <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about um, Sicilian Baroque architecture. Oh, because, don't know much know, about that. Well, you do yourself down because, you know, you and I, have we know quite a lot about architecture, right? Ecclesiastical architecture, don't we? You're reaching back. At, you're, you're reaching into your bookshelf now. I can tell you. Often yeah, I do have here somewhere. Turn your back. Oh. You turn your back on me, Ban. You turn your back on me. Damn your eyes. Damn your eyes. Are you getting a book Remember? from your bookshelf? Yep. Oh, I gave you that ages ago. How to read castles? Yeah. And how to read churches? A crash course in Christian architecture. I gave you those books when we first started commentating on the Tour de France, yeah. didn't I? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Still here. Still here. This so, handy volume is a guide to appreciating Western Christian ecclesiastical buildings. I don't even know how to say that word. Say that word again? Almost. Say that word again. Ecclesiastical. 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 You know the word. Come on, you know the word. You're better than that. You know the word. 
Ecclesiastical. Come on, do it for me. Help me. Right. Aim for the middle of the word, right? So ecclesiastical. 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 Architecture. Yep. And the logic of structure is taken to extremes by church architects. Sending stone skyward as a lacy steeple of, or curved dome. Since churches have a spiritual message to convey, they are often adorned with non-structural elements and exquisitely decorated. La la la. Well, it's Very true, good. isn't it? That's I, I, that, was, I, don't, I, I can't... I on. I can't remember. I, no, I do remember how it came about, actually. When we were driving on that first transfer that I detailed in our last podcast across central Sicily, when, just before we punctured, um, mm. I was talking to Matt Ste- Oh, no. Tell a lie. Actually, sorry, it was on yesterday's transfer from the south to the north of the island. Um, I was talking to Matt Stevens about, and we talk about this, that, and the other. Uh, for some reason, the topic of George Orwell came up in conversation. And I think I might have referenced ah, this in, ah. in, in, in podcasts. Yeah, well, Cat- yeah. well, exactly. Homage to Catalonia, which I've not, I've not read, actually, and I should read. It's, it's on my to-read list. Yeah. But um, I spent a lot of this year going, going back really through his... Yeah going back through his kind of slightly lesser known or lesser appreciated writings like uh, Coming Up for Air and, uh, and I can't remember the other one I read but anyway come to me. But, um, but but then we went seamlessly we were talking about those kind of interesting texts that are understood to be um, you know very important to teach children at school in Britain for, for some reason and George mm. Orwell obviously has two historically that, that kind of stand out that's Animal Farm mm. and 1984 and I, I would assume that almost mm. all of our listeners would have had some experience of, of both of those books um, but there's another yeah. book that for, for some reason is kind of almost or used to be I don't know what it is now used to be kind of irreplaceable in the English language curriculum and that was Lord of the Rings right and uh, oh, I, yes. strangely, I think I read it years ago. I can't remember too much about it. But I do know about the man who wrote it because I, at one point, think, and I think it's true, I think I have read everything that this author has written. Not a huge amount. I mean, he, he was he was, he was was prolific without being Charles Dickens, you know, so I didn't have to play through 100,000 words. Mm. Um, but um, but there, there were, I got heavily into this writer. And then I had a, a senior moment, as I often do, when I simply couldn't remember his name. So... Who wrote The Lord they of the are. Flies? No. The Lord of the Flies? Yeah, see. Um, and Nork and Matt. And Matt suddenly remembered it as well. He went, yeah, yeah. Who, so who wrote Who wrote Lord of the Flies? Now, everyone will be hurling things, listening to this podcast, that they're training. A bit like they were doing in yesterday's pod, when we neither yeah, you or I could good. remember what a sous vide yeah. was, or, or the name. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I'll tell you, because there's a reason I want to mention his name. William Golding wrote Lord of the Flies. Oh, yeah, okay. But yeah. for my money, by far, well, actually, I'm not sure about that because I think there's another book that, that interests me just as much. But um, one of his best books, uh, William Golding, was called The Spire. And it was set in a fictional um, cathedral uh, town in the English south. So hmm. I think it's based loosely on Salisbury Cathedral from memory. And it fictionalizes an account of the deacon. I think that's right. The deacon, not the bishop, the deacon of the, of the church, who's actually in charge of the structure of the church. And listen, I think I'm, this is ecclesiastical detail in, in a grand measure here, and I may have got it wrong. But he takes it upon himself because he's in a tremendously pious and vain man 
um, that he wants to leave this lasting stamp on the world by building the tallest spire in the world. And um, nice. he, he, build, he, he built his team together of architects he and masters. He won't be the last. Exactly. Master builders to construct mm. this vast spire that they're going to bolt onto the nave. Because you and I know, don't we, from the Tour de France coverage, yeah. that these churches originally never had spires, you know, mm. in, when they were first built in the, in the 12th century. They were, the spires were often added later. So, um, but against all the best advice of the master builders, and he, he goes ahead with this um, hubris, this project to build this spire. And I hope this isn't a spoiler for anyone who wants to read the book. It doesn't end well, right? So misery and uh, accident and tragedy kind of descends on the whole town. And in the end, there's a cataclysm. Yeah. Um, but uh, why am I mentioning that? Oh, because we were talking about ecclesiastical architecture. And I wanted to come back to... So what we know about ecclesiastical architecture, you and I, could be written on the back of a fag packet, really, couldn't it? Um, or a postage stamp. But broadly speaking, David, I think we understand that there are kind of three main genres of, of ecclesiastical architecture. Am I right in saying that? Uh, that seems about right, because three tends to be the number. So it starts, the, the earliest kind of stuff is Romanesque. Actually, maybe four. Romanesque, Gothic, Baroque. Yeah, yeah. Or Baroque yeah. and then Gothic Revival. and the, the, But there's Gothic before that. No, you're right. There's yeah, Gothic before that. And then Baroque and yeah. then Gothic Revival, I suppose. And yeah. then you know, into modernism and stuff, I suppose, after that. Scratching around a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But of all those styles. styles, and Girona's Cathedral is a really good case in points. Because Girona's Cathedral, which we talked about on our Girona uh, podcast, is utterly, bewilderingly beautiful. Um, and, and quite extraordinary because yeah, of its high walls mm. and its high windows mm. and everything. But it's got it's this kind of monolithic, isn't it? It's got this grotesque, monolithic. monolithic. It's got this grotesque baroque facade, hasn't mm. it? You know, with its big mm. rose window and its pompous, very ornate kind of facade that's yeah. been bolted onto the front in the seventeenth uh, century, I think. Um, and imagine that kind of baroque architecture and extrapolate mm. it tenfold. And there you will get a sense of what Sicily is like in terms of its ecclesiastical architecture, because Sicily is full of, oh, it's got its own Baroque style. Sicilian Baroque is a thing, you know. Um, it's mm. apt. And does it, does it appear authoritarian? I think it does t- it, to a certain extent in that uh, it, it strikes me that it came about at a time in which the Vatican was um, intent on you know, different form perhaps of subjugating its citizens by mm. uh, raw expression of wealth and um, and hmm. uh, luxury, I suppose. Um, but you know, mm. so 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 hence the kind of like uh, the, the, the kind of almost unachievable complexity of the paintings, the frescoes, you know, the the the, the ceiling um, paintings, and all the architecture, mm. and the folds and bits like that. Um, they're kind of intimidating and they're designed to, I, I don't know what they're designed to do. <laughs> yeah, well, they're, well, you know what they're designed to do? Cause this is this to jump around and, um, there didn't used to be police. Um, but there was right and wrong and the church decided right and wrong. And yeah. then your peers would judge you through your failing. Remember yeah. when we did the tour of Girona and it was within, within 150 meters of the church yep. it was kind of untouchable oh yeah but then um i remember reading oh, who's have you ever read that book arthur and george and it's about um 
Arthur Conan Doyle and no, I haven't. Uh, so anyway, anyway, it was really revealing because I didn't realise in nineteenth century England you basically didn't really have police even then. They were just coming up through the ranks and it was just starting. There was no authority. So Robert Peel. And we kind of always look at the Wild West yeah. and think of sheriffs yeah. and. But actually, yeah. that's where it started. Yeah. Yeah. Before that, so actually, the church was the authority. Yeah. They they called the shots. They held. They held. They called the shots. Mm. So the buildings they had had to be um, represent the power, and the the cardinals. You didn't have obviously, or the the local priests and the the whole system uh, had the power mm. to judge right or wrong, and then you mm. it was. Uh, autocratic to a certain degree and also self-policing but it was only when people started the industrial revolution i guess and when the army started to die and the church lost its power that uh, society had to bring in police to control people because god didn't matter so much and the churches weren't so scary the cathedrals didn't matter the churches were places of worship rather than places of authority yeah so, uh, and uh, the best example of that is it Narbonne or where is it? We always pass Albi. Albi Cathedral. Yeah. Your Cathar. Where it's just yeah. terrifying. Yeah. 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 The Cathar where it looks like the most terrifying kind of castle. Fortress. Yeah. And yeah. it was kind of put here after the, um, the cleansing. Yeah. The, so yeah. So I suppose it's really interesting when you go to different places and the churches represent different things, but ultimately yeah. they weren't just about religion. They were about authority and yeah. they were about societal control. And they were about him enforcing people to behave because if you didn't behave, well, who could build something like that? They'd have to have a lot of power, a lot of money, a lot of influence to be able to rally 300 years of work, etc. And then have all these dress up and people come there to pray and worship and mm. you wouldn't want to cross them. But then we started to believe less. So we brought in police and created, wrote laws. Yeah. And, and then, then built our first. And then and courts. Then, yeah, and then a, a century or, or so later, we built the first secular cathedral in the CERN Large Hadron Collider, which cost, you know, cost cost Next basically the, the budget of a small country to build, and no one consented yeah. to building it. Just those who knew built it, and they imposed it on us. And they go there Still clothed in special amazing. clothing, you know, to, to pursue their own religion. Yeah. I'm being facetious, but I, I genuinely think CERN is the first of the secular mm. cathedrals. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah. well, I don't know where Max Chiandri fits into all of this, <laughs> quite. But um, uh, so yeah. Yeah. No, no, Max, Max is great because nah, it was good. just hearing, I haven't heard his voice in ages. When I heard that voice, it's I just brought back so many fond memories. What do you like and about him? Because there's not a, there's not a, there is not a figure from the British road racing scene who one way or another doesn't love Max Chiandri. He's been front and center of it for a long time, hasn't mm. he? In a, in a kind of slightly hidden way. He's, yeah, he's just so Italian. I mean, he's so British and so Italian. He's such a mishmash. He's always been very kind to me, um, but he just doesn't, he, we talk about, and actually, you know what, Cav uh, was one of his, he was a mentor to Cav, and sometimes you see a lot of, uh, there's some Chandri in Cav, in the sense that kind of is that, I remember with Max Chandri, would be like, oh, you, you're a young pro, you're making money, buy a fast car, get a, <laughs> get a watch. Like, Didn't he encourage? I think Max like, encouraged. He just whole, loved everything so much. 
he encouraged that whole generation in karate to buy Vespers, didn't he? I think he was, yeah. he was pretty much behind that. And so, <laughs> true. Oh my God. I just, I just, I just remembered a great line from Max Giandri. So he, he went to Motorola. Um, this was the, the kind of the pre US postal, the first big after 7 yeah. Eleven. And he went on there from Italian teams and he said, Ah, oh, Dave, I went on there and I just, I had no choice but to upgrade their lives. It was because <laughs> nobody spent their money. <laughs> it was like, guys, this is the time of your life. You're racing bikes. You get to train. You're paid to ride your bike. Yeah. Buy a nice, buy yourself a nice watch. Like, I wonder what the Italian. I wonder what the Italian is for joie de vivre because I don't my my you know my French is yeah, better. And that's and that's, that's it, Max though, and he's yeah, he's he, that's it and it was just this and he and he literally he loves riding his bike. And he loved racing his bike, but he also yeah. loves the beautiful things. And it was like, he'd always be, you deserve it. Get a beautiful watch, yeah. buy a car. Why save it? It's, you could die tomorrow, <laughs> which was great if you didn't, if you did die tomorrow. But five years later, you find yourself with nothing <laughs> to resell watches and cars. <laughs> domani e domani. Eh? And that's Max. And then that's why he loves Sicily so much because Sicily literally embodies um, Max's attitude of life, which is it's for today. It's carpe diem. Uh, Do you know, uh, I had this wonderful wonderful encounter today in Mondello, which is a beautiful seaside resort. And by the way, the beach wasn't packed, but it was really busy today just with locals. You know, this beach stays open till the end of October. You were quite right yesterday when you Mm -hmm. said Sicily is basically the closest that Europe gets to Africa. Look at a map. Look at a map. Look how close it is to Tunisia. Mm. It's alarming. Mm. I mean, not a lot. That's a stupid word to use. But it's um, mm. surprisingly close. I mean, mm. it's kind of, you were absolutely right. We are a long mm. way south here. And um, yeah. and it is searingly hot still. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah so, so anyway, I went for a walk before we went on air today, before, just while the stage was started, before we got live television pictures up. And I went to um, the center of Mondello. And I uh, saw a, there's this little square and I saw a, beautiful grocer's shop with all this fruit and veg laid out you know when you see a shop and you know that mm. great care has been taken with the presentation of the fruit and veg, TLC. and therefore the yeah. fruit and veg is going to be good isn't it it's just going to you know and i could see in the dark inside it's only a small corner shop i could see that there were hams hanging up little bottles of wine in the back and olive oil and bits and pieces like that and i saw uh, a, 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 a quite senior lady just sitting at the till waiting for customers and i noted that the name of the shop was um I forget what the Alimentaria Schilacci. Yeah. Schilacci. Yeah. And I thought back to um, football and Italia 90 and the Italy's great goal scorer then was a, it's a Sicilian goal scorer with these uh, piercing blue eyes who was, the, I think, the golden boot of that particular World Cup. He just kept scoring. He was called Toto Schilacci and he was a kind of folk legend huh. for about a year or two. And, and, and I remember very clearly he was Sicilian. Um, so I thought I was drawn to the shop, but for no reason. I, you know, I didn't actually want to buy anything. I just wanted to be in the shop. So I walked in at this yeah. intense sunlight into this dark interior of the shop. And you know me, I've been trying to learn a little bit of Italian. And I stood there and the, the old lady kind of smiled at me for a bit. And I did a, I kind of pivoted through 360 degrees, taking in everything, the slight smell of cheese, the wonderful kind of 
aroma of some of the the, the, the herbs that were laid out. It's just beautiful. And I said, to, I wanted to say to her in Italian, my very, very rusty, broken Italian, I wanted to say to her, you have a beautiful shop. But for the life of me, I couldn't remember what the word for a shop was. So I said, I said, I said, um, what did I say? La tua casa è una bella casa. So I, I disrespected her by using the familiar in the first place. Yeah. And then I just nice. called her shop her house. Oh, <laughs> but, but you know what? She knew that I didn't couldn't speak Italian and she grinned from ear to ear and she gently corrected me and she looked she pointed Aww. at the her, what I'd called her casa and she just said negozio which is the word for a shop and we smiled uh. and she poured me a glass of cold water and then made me a little um cafe and like that and I <laughs> and so I bought a bottle of wine <laughs> for 24 euros by the way which wowzers yeah yeah a nero davola no wonder it's called negocio yeah <laughs> there was no negocio <laughs> going on for my part i just yeah, i just shelled like... out i'm having that i'd pay twice as much for this encounter it was beautiful <laughs> oh i'm so lucky to do this i'm so lucky to do this job david um but um so also yeah because Maybe Malta, where I was born, is the closest to Africa. Yeah, that's in, really close to Africa, right? And that's really close to Sicily as well. Why were you, bo- why were you I, born in Malta? Was your dad living there at the time? or, or what? Yeah, parents were Royal Air Force, so based there. But it was still you know, military bases. Yeah. So I was born in Malta. The first year of my life was there. I've, yeah. I've raced. I've won a gold medal for Malta. I know. I know. Yeah. But um, but it was really interesting because then I went Sorry, back. Sorry, that, that sounded like I, I was decrying that. Sounded like I was decrying your achievement. No, it was just I, didn't, I, didn't I was just validating the fact that it's recognised. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, when I went back there, this was a few years ago. I was with Nicole, and I was like, "Wow, this it's a pretty amazing place because it is that absolute perfect mix of Africa and Italy, right. and with some sort of the, the British sort of culture built in." Because there was. It, and I remember thinking how much it reminded me of Sicily, but it was a bit more organized. And yeah. it also was a lot more African and it was a lot more open. So, yeah, so I, I can kind of relate to Sicily. And, um, but yeah, it is, it is, it's very different. And I do, do wonder just kind of what all the bike racers think in this. When everyone complains about safety and mm. kind of road quality, when you get to Sicily, you kind of have to throw it out yeah, the window. A little bit. <laughs> don't, don't, don't you, you know, you see what I mean? Yeah. Because we always, and they always, I always say we, we're always whinging about safety and, and kind of the quality of the roads, or you shouldn't take us there. Yeah. But if you go to Sicily, there's probably going to be few barriers. There's going to be people walking yeah. across the road, dogs dogs running around, yeah, perhaps yeah, the occasional yeah. car. and But you don't complain. Yeah. Because you expect yeah. it, and <laughs> it's part of the experience. Yeah, and uh, it's it's quite nice that that still exists, because otherwise, yeah. it, and and we've got to be really careful because one day you might have races. Imagine if the tour of Sicily and it was just barriered off the whole way, it just wouldn't work. Yeah, and yeah, you kind yeah, of yeah. need that chaos. Even when we were in Sicily, and this is why I, was, I, I talked about throwing eggs. Yesterday we were in Palermo and we had all our team buses. Oh, going that through. actually happened because I, I thought you were just uh, joking. Uh, no, no, actually, no, no, no. there were just there were just kids oh, no. throwing eggs out of bus windows, and I was oh, I so thought it did it was happen. Hilarious. Right, okay. <laughs> yeah, and I just thought it was hilarious. So I was like, yeah. I just yeah. thought it was brilliant. Because if I was a little kid in that sort of place, I'd be probably be throwing eggs at team buses just for fun. 
and it yeah. was just like it was yeah. so good so I, I can kind of relate to that whole whole madness of the place and why it's it's probably the last bastion of what a lot of italians want italy to be rather yeah. than the, the absolute organization of northern italy and how how italy's becoming anglicized and and losing the magic and and oh there's and plenty rome, less before there's, rome was yeah. they used to there's plenty there's plenty there's plenty, there's plenty left there's plenty of non-anglicized magic italy yeah. you know the length and breadth of the country hey listen david yeah, you this, know um we, yeah. we 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 did ask the question yesterday as to whether or not there was a subset of one a venn diagram of one um sicilian based never strays farfalle listener yeah oh is that d- d- one we've had an email david cunningham um oh. i've just listened to your tuesday podcast from sicily and i'm listening in sicily I'm currently here on holiday with my wife celebrating her birthday. We have stayed in Palermo, the Casa Cuseni in Taumina, and now in uh, Castalamere del Golfo. We know Sicily very well, and my wife also works here as a tour guide. Three places above her are favorite parts of Sicily. Uh, We used to have an apartment in Castellamare del Golfo. I'm a keen cyclist and only found out a few weeks ago that the Giro di Sicily Giro di Sicilia is on whilst we're here, but haven't been able to alter my plans so far to take in any of it. Yes, Sicily is a fascinating place. So there we go. We were right. There's always one, isn't there? That's what we know. There's always, there's always one. There's always going to be one. That's yeah. A nice we're though. Just scattered independently we, across the world. We also had um, a, 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 an email from a correspondent. Just trying to call it up again. A correspondent called Simon Crompton who appreciated our last podcast. Um, and I, I'm not going to read it out, but I'm deeply flattered because, uh, Simon, you know what you wrote. And um, I'm, I'm just very flattered because I genuinely think our listeners get it. The fact that we are now, let me check, the, we're now 26 minutes, 47 seconds or so into this podcast. And we haven't really talked about the bike racing yet. And I hope that doesn't bother you. Otherwise, you will have stopped listening now. But we could talk about the bike race. But but by way of, by way of talking about the bike race, David, and this I am doing because I've been invited to by the race organization itself. Okay, this is kind of significant and important. Today, excuse me, the race one went from uh, Selenunte, the Greek temple of Selenunte, which was absolutely beautiful and largely intact from the time where the, you know, the Greeks occupied this island, the ancient Greeks, um, from the south of the island over the western tip of the peninsula to the north, to Mondello, which is just outside Palermo, 173 kilometers, right? This is what matters, though. The first king of the mountain was at Portello della Ginestra. Meant nothing to me. It's not a climb of any great... Nothing to me. It's not a climb of any great significance, Mm -hmm. and not a climb of any great significance that means anything in the world of cycling. However, you tell any Italian of a certain age, I would imagine, but if you tell most Italians who know a little bit about their country that the race is going over Portello della Ginestra, and they will say 1947, and they'll say May Day, May the 1st, 1947. So in the immediate aftermath of um, Italy's defeat uh, at the end of the Second World War, uh, the left-leaning parties, the socialist parties and the communist parties made big gains um, in local and regional elections, most notably in Sicily. And um, the peasants of the region gathered on Labour Day, on May the 1st, um, uh, in 1947, at the top of the Portello della Ginestra. And um, a bunch of men 
appeared on the hillsides overlooking where they had gathered with machine guns. Further men appeared uh, on horseback carrying arms and uh, started to massacre uh, the the people who'd gathered on Labour Day. Eleven people were killed in total, including four children uh, who lost their lives in the, in the, in the massacre. Um, those children being, and I'd like to just name check them just for the sake of uh, completion, 11 people killed, including four children. Seferino Lascari, who was 15, Giovanni Grifo, 12 years old, Giuseppe Di Maggio, 13, and Vincenzo Lafata, who was just eight years old. 27 people were wounded, including a little girl who had her jaw shot off. Uh, uh, and that I'm quoting from um, the Wikipedia page, which I'm, I'm sure is factu- factually accurate. Now, this was a, a kind of national tragedy. had long-reaching consequences that the... the um, the suspicion was that Salvatore Giuliani, Giuliano was a mafioso, but he might well have been working in cahoots with central government in Italy, right? It was never established who did it and uh, quite what the motivation was and how far back the connections went, right? 1947. Fast forward to 1992 and fast forward on today's stage to the intermediate sprint of the day, which was 12.5 kilometers from the finish line in a little town called Capacci, Okay. In Capacci, or just outside Capacci, in May of 1992, a judge or investigating, magi- investigating magistrate, stroke judge, you know how the, 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 the judicial system works yeah. in Italy and France, um, called Giovanni Falcone, was murdered by the mafia in the most brutal fashion imaginable. Mm. They had tunneled the mafia underneath a road just outside Capacci, and they had packed this tunnel with tons of Semtex. And as he drove over uh, with his bodyguards, they blew the road up. It was like a, an atom bomb going off, basically. Mm. Uh, Giovanni Falcone was killed. His wife, Francesca, who was also a magistrate, was killed, as well as three bodyguards. This was, for Italy, a seismic event, right? Yeah. Now, his lifelong friend and colleague, also a judge, Paolo Bossolino, also from Palermo, Um, started to investigate the death of his friend, Giovanni Falcone, and started perhaps to link the Sicilian mafia to government and the fact that there might have been some collusion and negotiation going on between the two. And in July, so two months later, in 1992, uh, Paolo Borsellino was killed in a car bomb on the Via Dalmeio next to his mother's house in Palermo. It was a car bomb that killed him and um, and five police officers. Now, Palermo Airport, wow. if you ever fly into there, is now called the Falcone Bossolino Airport. It's been renamed in both their, their honours. And in fact, th- there is a velodrome hmm. in Palermo called the Paoli, uh, Paolo Bossolino Velodrome as well. And there you go. Accidental tourism, David. I knew nothing about the history of any of those events until the Giro Sicilia quite deliberately put a king of the mountains climb on the first one and a sprint of the second one. Isn't that remarkable? That is remarkable. This is bike racing doing history again. This is the whole point. We'd spoken about this in the past where bike racers do the point of them also being is to remind us of, um, of places and people. Well, we had it and on the, we had it on the Deutschland tour, didn't we? Where, um, yeah, we did. Um, where and it's, um, but this that reminded me because when you're talking of the 
the the magistrate judge, yep. which is something we don't have in Anglo-Saxon culture. The investigating magistrate or something, yeah. yeah. Investigating magistrate. Yeah. And this is a, a, a quote. Um, it was Honoré de Balzac. No human authority can encroach upon the power of an investigating judge. Nothing can stop him. No one can control him. Mm. So an investigative judge, uh, they uh, supersede the police and politics. Mm. It's a Napoleonic law. So this is one of the, the good legacies of when Napoleon was creating, um, kind of doing what he did, he decided because he was so anti um, the the crown and anti the the aristocracy and didn't trust politicians he created the the system of of law that puts these judges above everything mm. which means no one can stop them mm. hence why he would have been killed and hence why it would have caused caused such a reaction mm. and they're they're trained to be judges from school onwards they go to school when they're 18 to, to be trained to be these judges. Mm. They don't, they're not lawyers, mm. then become judges. They're, they're taught to, to decide. To decide. And yeah. So to decide. Yeah. And no politicians can stop them. Mm. No, no police can stop them. They, they will order the police what to investigate. Yeah. They can investigate politicians. Yeah. And it's a, it's an amazing system, actually. Yeah. It's a Napoleonic system that doesn't exist in, in the Western world. Uh, apart from in the remnants well, in the, of the Anglo, in the Anglo, system. Anglo sphere, maybe. Yeah, I was going to say, in, uh, yeah, yeah, in the, yeah, in the English, in the Anglo yeah, world, yeah. the Anglo-Saxon world, yeah. it doesn't exist. But in France and Italy, it remains uh, very powerful. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. So anyway, <laughs> by grace, Stefano Gandin won the climb <laughs> to the Portello della Ginestra. Um, six <laughs> men in the breakaway today. They got caught a lot earlier on today because it was a bit dicey on yesterday's stage. Um, it was it was the last of the bunch sprints at the uh, Giro di Sicilia, and it duly delivered. And once again, it was uh, Juan Sebastian Malano, this time led out by Brandon McNulty, who I've noted, I've often thought about it, but only today did I kind of realise and put it into expression that he his pedalling stroke and his position on a bike is very Wiggins-esque. He's got that flexible ankle thing going on and the mm, very flat it? back. Yeah, have a look next time you see him. Yeah, um, heel down. So, yeah, so he did <clears throat> what Wiggins did on the Champs-Élysées for Cavendish in 2012. Um, Brandon McNulty did for his sprinter today, um, doing that kind of penultimate turn. And then once again, Max Richese huh. did his huge lead out and absolutely, and Molano just bossed the sprints and he's made it two out of two. So he continues oh, to lead cool. lead the bike race. But here's the point. Tomorrow is a, is a punchy uphill finish. Now, looking at the road book, you kind of like didn't really know much about the climb. It goes up to Caronia. So, you know, we talked about, you asked me yesterday, is Sicily really mountainous? And I said, not really, because if you stick along the coast, it isn't. But the minute you turn inland, it is. And (laughs) nowhere is that more kind of classically borne out than in tomorrow's finish to Caronia, because they go along this coastal road. It's flat. They turn right and they go straight uphill to this hilltop town. <laughs> Why are you laughing, Carla? <laughs> just because I just think that's the sort of thing I say. Yeah. It's like an oxymoronic comment. If you stay on the coast, it's quite flat. Because <laughs> it's sea level. <laughs> <laughs> but if you go inland, it gets quite hilly. Well, the reason for that is the sea finds it really hard to go uphill. <laughs> that's so it tries. Twice a day it tries, but it never <laughs> succeeds. And it always has to just run back downhill again. We know that. 
Um, so anyway, yeah. This this good. this little this little climb up to Caronia, this little hilltop town tomorrow, is so severe that I've just left the guys down at dinner, and they're panicking because they can't get the TV trucks and the infrastructure up there. Oh, wow, so <laughs> it's one of them. It's one of them. And the last time I was awesome. in a the last time I was at a race like that where they couldn't get the TV trucks up because it's too narrow and too twisty and too steep was only the other week at the Tour of Britain where they couldn't get them up the Great Orm finish in Clandudno. Do you remember where Alaphilippe oh, and right, yeah. Wavenart had that little duel? Yeah. So I thoroughly, expect, yeah. I thoroughly expect Roman Bardet and Alejandro Valverde in particular to do battle um, up, the, up, up to the finish in Caronia tomorrow and uh, riders like Nibali and Brandon McNulty potentially to be limiting their losses. We'll see. We'll see. A little bit of cycling thrown in at the end there. <clears throat> <laughs> before Very good. before before we leave cycling alone completely and before we end the podcast <laughs> have you got any other cycling things to say david that you want to get off your chest or is it all you know uh french and italian judicial systems uh, and ecclesiastical I have, architecture i did have any i yeah no i did have Ecclesias- ecclesiastical no i don't want any more um, ecclesiastical I have some, I, some earlier but i can't remember it now like the cycling stuff almost becomes any other business now, doesn't it? ecclesiastical like we've got to that point where the cycling yeah. stuff is almost getting, um, getting offensive actually to people we should reclassify ourselves as not a sports podcast but oh i got yeah. one go on i got one so i was thinking about this so we did a a, a bike ride with chapter three a few days ago and we're launching a dirt collection and and you're a huge advocate of this and we had a friend come uh a lovely guy called james who um lovely james doesn't know much about cycling james carnes and he's he worked at adidas for years and is an amazing shoe designer and has done many of the things that most people will know about adidas and he was like why do you clip in and he was like why do you wear that and you're just asking all these questions and you started to go, oh, actually, I don't know. Because for most of the time, I probably don't need to clip in. Isn't the science, isn't there no, Lycra. is there no, isn't the science a bit kind of ambiguous about the benefits of clipping I mean, in? Why do I think for that? For sure, if you're, yeah. if you're racing, I understand 100%. Yeah. You know, but it's. He said, for most of the time, you're not racing, I, and I, not racing. We we've done crazy stuff in our Bromptons, yeah, just in jeans and t-shirts and whatever shoes we're wearing, yeah. And we went for a ride, and he wore trainers, and there was another girl with her, and tra- I was in trainers, and on gravel bikes, did a crazy ride. They were in a t-shirt and our, our t-shirts and some just some cycling shorts and normal shorts, and they were with us the whole time and having a yeah. great time. And I thought, oh. <laughs> Maybe we don't, I mean, we need to wear stuff for, we need to follow the rules for the really fast stuff, but maybe yeah. for all the other stuff, we should relax a little bit. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was just that idea. It was kind of a bit of an epiphany. If I'm on a road mm. bike, uh, I like wearing kind of fast stuff and clipped in. You're probably, you're probably, I don't know how you'd feel about ever sitting on a road bike with flat pedals. You've, you'd really start, I think you'd yeah, struggle I'd with find that. that on a road bike I couldn't I couldn't do it. you know my road bike at home my blue road bike I couldn't do it I'd have to you know you see the flat bike, pedals there yeah, yeah, yeah. it annoys me <laughs> it actually annoys you now you've said it out loud <laughs> it annoys me. your bike annoys it me it annoys me Look at your no, ro- road for me road for me is, is are the rules and I, I kind of I can't stop that that's just too deeply ingrained I'm probably <laughs> it wrong it annoys me I love it but, um, it annoys me <laughs> but for, for 
for gravel for mountain biking for yeah. street riding commuting yeah. you think we don't have to follow anything okay rules, when's a road a street um, and when's a street a road because you've just described uh, you know, a street is a destination a street is a destination where you're where you, yeah in the sense that it's a it's oh, a it's a means stops so road for yeah. you Whereas road a, means a road ride road means is exercise. always you start and finish yeah. at the same place yeah, a, a road ride, okay. generally you start and finish at the same okay. place. Or you might have a cafe stop. Well, tell that to the Tour de France. Tell that to the Tour de France. They need oh, to start and finish in Paris like they did in I mean. 2003. <laughs> <laughs> don't, be, don't ruin my theory. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But anyway, no, I, I, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, but I love the fact that you've... Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Um, what do we feel about... I guess, now, yeah. Like, to, just one, one last thing about cycling. What? Um, at the week... What? <laughs> At the weekend, Paris-Roubaix oh, is going to happen. Men and, men, and, men, and, <laughs> men and women's Paris-Roubaix is going to happen, David. And um, it's going to be wet. And it's on the same day? No, it's um, consecutive days. So the women's race is on Saturday oh. and the men's race is on... I think, I'm mm-hmm. right saying it's on Sunday. Um, and um, for years, people have been yearning for a wet Paris-Roubaix, haven't they? But it's going to be wet. Mm. And the closer it gets the more queasy people have become with this kind of yearning and this fetishizing of, of kind of risk. I, and I feel a bit conflicted about this because I... I'm not conflicted at all. Oh, you want to see a wet Paris-Roubaix? Oh, it's amazing. Okay. Well, that's kind and you know what? Then, and the bike racers who will do well, and this is from my experience, relish a wet Roubaix because it makes it easier. Yeah. And, yeah. and to be perfectly frank, the equipment's that is the riders have now mm. and the riders who choose to go there, mm-hmm. they know what they're going for. And a lot of those riders who are going there want it to be wet uh. because it makes it so much easier physically. Why? Because it's, because it doesn't go as fast. It's like everyone, we know we always talk about the terminal velocity into corners. And if you, if it's wet, everybody has to slow down. It ends up being a really slow race if it's wet. Because everybody's having to go slow, it becomes technique based. Okay. And so you got all the first half where it's fast because you got all the tarmac and then the fast section run ins. But as it goes through, I can guarantee you the really like Mathieu Vanderpool, Wout van Aert, and probably all the guys who are specialists will be just going to sleep every night, just closing their eyes, going, please rain, please rain, please rain. Okay. Because it will make their life so much easier if it rains. Yeah. Brilliant. Rain's the best here at Paris-Roubaix. Well, yeah. I could do with a bit of rain right in my room at the moment because I'm wilting, yeah. mate. I'm honestly, I've just tried the little button again. Yeah. Try and get the air conditioning. Look, watch. Try it again. No, nah, absolutely nothing. Dead. Dead. Cold shower. No, just Old school. Cold shower. Um, I'll yeah. edit this podcast. And um, we, 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 uh, well, we didn't promise to pod again today, but look, somehow we have done brilliantly. Mm-hmm. And let's, let's just go on the premise of not promising. Mm. and over delivering over deliver yeah. over delivering yeah. is what we do brilliant yeah all right cheers david bye see you see you next. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 